Welcome to Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, and I'm so excited to be interviewing Beth Peretta today. Beth is a remarkable leader in auto racing. She worked for Fiat Chrysler as the director of marketing and operations for their performance division, one of the first women to have such a position. And Her teams earned three national titles, including the Factory Viper Teams Championship in the IMSA Series and the NASCAR 2012 with Team Penske title. So she has so much experience in this field. In 2021, Peretta launched Peretta Autosport. This is a racing organization that is dedicated to leading diversity initiatives across professional racing disciplines, and that includes the Indy 500, IndyCar, NASCAR, and beyond. So we are so excited then to have Beth Pareto with us. Welcome to Burn It All Down. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I want to just start, you know, let's come in hot like you do. Um... We talk a lot on this show about starting independent sports organizations, different types of governing bodies. You know, you have launched this major organization. I can't imagine it as an undertaking. Can you tell us a little bit about how does one just decide to start this type of endeavor? Well, it's funny. Somebody asked me like, well, what made you think that you could do this? Which is sort of a funny thing. So I have an IndyCar team, a professional IndyCar team. Uh, so a what is unique about us is that we're majority women and it had never been done before. The impetus behind it is uh, I was working for car companies and saw how car companies used racing. I mean, I've been a racing fan my whole life, like started as a kid, literally watching it on TV. I was like a fan in the stands. I'd beg my parents to take me to the track and they did. I grew up in New England. And so, you know, we'd go to the local tracks. Um, I played with, you know, Barbies and matchbox cars. Right. So, um, but I never, uh, necessarily thought that it was something that I would do for a living, probably because I think my parents just thought it was like, oh, this is not, not a phase, but like, this is just a hobby, right. It, it never like translating hobby into career. So I went a completely different path. And then eventually in a roundabout way, found myself working for, uh, in the automotive business, working for car companies. And then eventually probably, um, even subconsciously, elbowed my way towards racing. Um, because I, even when I, I would, I was still, I would still go to races as a fan on weekends, even when I had other jobs. Um, so it's no surprise that I still do this. People that have known me my whole life, you know, are completely unsurprised by what I do. Um, but the reason I wanted to start this team that's majority women was, working for car companies, there is a shortage of talent, of engineering talent. I wasn't an engineer, but I was in enough meetings to hear, you know, to see the hand-wringing and the worry and and hear them kind of lamenting that there were, talent was sort of retiring at a fast rate that it was being backfilled, regardless of gender. I mean, obviously mostly men. Um, And then I was in a lot of meetings where I was the only woman in the room. And, you know, at first that seems cool. And I think a lot of people have that experience that are in, you know, historically male businesses, male dominated things. And we all have that story of like, oh, you know, at first you kind of think like, wow, look at me, I've made it. And then you realize 
there should be more of us. Um, and then you make that, you make <laughs> yeah. that pivot and you realize, oh God, let me like pull, pull people up the ladder. Mm-hmm. So in a very acute way, I saw what car companies were, were using racing for. They're using it to attract talent. Um, they use it for um, employee morale, company mm-hmm. morale. Like, you know, if you're in a big NASCAR championship and you're Chevy versus Ford and you win, you know, that's something that's echoed through the halls of General Motors genuinely, as it should be, right? It's, it's like this weird thing where your company can be participating in sports. So I saw all of that firsthand in, in what I did. And I thought, okay, this is a magical platform in a lot of ways. Let's do something with it. Let's do more with it. Um, and so that was the idea of, okay, let's, let's maybe put it, put a team together of a bunch of women. I knew that there are women in racing. We, we tend to all know each other. And my light bulb moment was like, well, if we grab those women that are scattered about and put them on one team, it makes a pretty compelling visual when you see, you know, 15 women in matching uniforms, you know, you look at major league soccer and you see those women and you know, that they're all together on one team. Mm-hmm. The cool thing about racing is it's co-ed co-ed mm-hmm. today. We don't, we, we don't need to have our own league. Um, and we can be working side by side on teams. It really is for everybody and can be for everybody and should be for everybody because yes, you have the drivers who can even start as literally as five-year-olds and kind of come up the path, but for all the other roles on the team, engineers and mechanics and crew and the business side and all of that, that's men and women working together. So that was the light bulb. But then why did I think I could do it? The answer is it never occurred to me that I couldn't. <laughs> Maybe it should have. <laughs> that kind of that question sort of gives me pause, but it never occurred to me that I couldn't. And I started thinking about it in the end of 2014, uh, resigned from Fiat Chrysler in 2015 to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, worked a lot behind the scenes, uh, try to make a run at it in 2016, kind of in, in the Indy 500 at the 11th hour, pulled the plug and uh, took some time, stepped away, you know, kind of regrouped and took a running start at it uh, middle of 2020. And here we are. And it worked. What's been the biggest challenge? I mean, you when you say, oh, I'm going to put together these incredibly talented women and okay, this is a sport that men and women and, you know, every whatever spectrum gender we have, genders can participate in. But then why aren't more people doing it? What is that obstacle that you face? I think the very easy obstacle is just awareness. People didn't even know. Mm. I mean, and if you look historically, so here's here's like these two little funny nuggets. So the Indy 500 started 110 years ago. The first one was 1911. So in a, it took 110 years to get a majority women's team. So like an 110 sounds like kind of abstract, right? Cause it's such a big number, but, and, but at the same time, you think about 1911 and things were so, so different. Okay, fine. But the other nugget that I just kind of did the math last week, and it was like, like a lightning bolt. So women didn't used to be allowed in the, in the paddock, in the garage area. Then that's where we, yeah, that's where we work on the cars and where, where the teams are like prepping the cars to get them ready to roll them out on the track. And for something like the Indy 500, it was always referred to as the month of May. There's just like days and days and weeks of practice and then qualifying. And then ultimately the race is usually Memorial Day weekend, the Sunday Memorial Day. So th- this is kind of like where the, the teams are camped out and they're working women were not allowed in that area until 1971. And the first women who were allowed were actually like media because there was like, you know, this pressure. And so you'll talk to people that will remember having been to the speedway and said, oh yeah, I'd be with a group of friends and we go right up to the fence and they could continue through. And then there we were the women like hanging by the fence because we weren't allowed in. 
okay. But I did the math and 1971, which doesn't feel like it's that long ago to when our team was, it's 50 years. So for all of the people who probably when they were letting ladies in, were like, oh, here goes the neighborhood. Like, you know, we're going to let us in the paddock. What next? Right. It took 50 years. <laughs> yeah. Informal sexism is incredibly effective that way. Right. You can, you can. You didn't tear, even know it's there. Yeah. You can tear down the law and that's just the beginning of. Exactly. You know, that's just a right. brick in the wall. Slippery um, slope. Yeah. So the um, funny thing though, is the first woman winning team owner was 1929 hmm. and her name was Maud Yeagle, but because she couldn't let on that she was a woman, she had, she used her initials. So oh. she kind of like snuck in and she's just this wealthy woman from Philadelphia and not much is known about her, but huh. in her entry sheet, she put M.A. Yeagle and it happened that her car won the Indy 500 in 1929. So then the cat was out of the bag and it was a woman. That's incredible. Blasphemy. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And we need to learn more about her. Like, I think they've tried to do some research and there's not, there's not a lot of information about her, but like, you know, that's one of those things I'd you'd love to see somebody make a documentary. Yeah. I always think to myself, and I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not a U.S. historian. I'm, I am an historian, but Latin American, right? Um, and so I think of Indy 500, I think it's like a way to convert these like moonshine runners into like legitimate athletes. That's what literally that's how NASCAR yeah. started. Yeah. So NASCAR stock car, that was literally that. Yeah, yeah. Because they were souping up there because stock car, you know, national stock car auto racing is what NASCAR is. So stock car referred to that they were showroom stock, but what the secret was, is they were souping them up to run moonshine. Right. To outrun police. Right. Exactly. Yeah. See so where they were hooligans. Yeah. So I had always thought, you know, I'm surprised they didn't try to get women around to sort of like safen up the sport, like in right. in soccer when they want hooliganism to stop way back in the 1920s. They're like, let's let women in for free because it'll kind of like chill men out. Oh, to like settle it down. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but so cool thing about racing too, is, uh, it's good and bad. We don't have, um, the way that race teams make money is sponsorship. The way that drivers progress through their career up the ladder, it's kind of like our equivalent of triple A, double A, single A, like the way that they kind of move along is funding. They need to be, have sponsors. Sometimes it's a local business. Sometimes it's their parents because their parents might be entrepreneurs and have some expendable income. And so that's one of the barriers for sure. It, and for, for that reason, I think because drivers is, have always been so visible, if you're not a person of means, you might just think like, oh, well, those are the, those are the only jobs available. But if you love racing, there's so many other jobs, even being a running a racetrack or being an official or all these other things. And so I think, you know, the biggest thing is just that there has been this lack of storytelling about anything beyond the driver. I mean, imagine if football teams were just focusing on the quarterback all the time. I mean, yes, they're important. Yes, they're critical, but there's so many other roles. And the only people who were at fault was everybody in racing. They weren't, you know, they were, oh, they were just putting the driver forward. And yes, mm -hmm. that's a compelling story. But like, again, not to take away with them and with all, with all due to the drivers, there's more, you know, like my team last year is 30 people. One of them's a driver and 29 are not. Um, the driver knows that all those people are are uh, important. So I think part of it was that just the awareness. Let's lift the veil and tell everybody else what you know how all this magic happens. Um, but but money has been a barrier for sure because um, whether you're a driver coming up or then when you're a team, so we're always fundraising. Unlike stick and ball sports where you have an arena, 
um, you know, if you're the Boston Red Sox, you've got Fenway Park and you're getting draw from the ticket, you know, the, the people coming in the door or the concessions or, you know, the merchandise. And that's one of the big revenue streams for the Boston Red Sox. And then they can put signs, you know, a, a Dunkin' Donuts sign out in the outfield. We don't have that as a race team. We don't have an arena. So um, the good thing, though, is our sport, we go, we go city to city all together. So our entire audience is watching all of us. And so that's kind of nice that we have this nice concentrated fan base. I will say one thing that's kind of cool is motorsport fans, like diehard fans, they totally know that we run on sponsorship. They're absolutely very loyal and patronize whatever the sponsor is. So if you did have Dunkin' Donuts across your chest and, and your rival team had Starbucks and, you know, they're a fan of you, they're going to go to Dunkin' Donuts. And there's mm-hmm. something really cool about that because mm-hmm. they know like that's the, that's kind of the, the pardon the pun, but like the fuel that keeps us like rolling. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we do actually have very sponsorship is, is not seen as like a crass, like add on. It's like, oh yeah, no, no, this is kind of what makes, makes this happen. Uh, I want to burn it all down car. See, oh, right. I think, I think that would be so great. Right. We right? could talk We a little sticker. Yeah. But with that said, so now when you watch racing and and this is the same, whether it's NASCAR, Formula Mm -hmm. One, IndyCar, when you, uh, now, when you look, look a little closer and see who's the big logo and who's the little logo and right. The size of the logo, um, will tell you how much they're likely paying. Hmm. Interesting. It's all relative. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. But it seems like a pretty difficult space to just break into throughout the 20th century for women. I mean, the bar seems to have been set very, very high from everything I'm reading. Um, Do you find that the women you're bringing on to your team, that they're sort of, they just are like you, like they just have a kind of personality where they're sort of like, I forgot to ask permission to do this. Like I just sort of like headlong or, or is there a variety of experiences from different countries? I mean, how do you look at the landscape? I think across the team, there's a variety of experiences based on the variety of roles because there have historically the women that have been in the paddock, for instance, have been like in marketing and PR 
but you know, for us to have a tire specialist who's a woman, people that then started to learn pit training to go over the wall to change tires for pit stops. Uh, a couple of them had gone through, um, had just were interested in it and went to this pit school that NASCAR put together, went through the school, did well, and then ultimately, you know, then applied to be hired by teams and then were never hired. Mm, interesting. So they basically had a mentorship program that had a really tight like ceiling, like a very yeah. low ceiling there. That's it. That's as far as they went concerned. through and a, a handful of them went through and then kind of, then of course got discouraged by not getting any traction. And so they kind of pivoted and said, okay, um, I'm going to give up on this dream and literally went on with their lives. And so when we were putting the team together last year, it was, you know, cause my goal was always to have this whole, again, this majority, I don't want, as, as I like to say too, I don't want to have a hundred percent woman's team um, because that's just unrealistic unreal, because I, you know, respectfully the way that I have to get there and the way that I did it last year and continue to is there aren't women at the highest level to make a complete pro team right now. There mm. just isn't, aren't enough experienced women. There are, I should say there are, but there uh, many of them are spoken for and are on other teams. And so I can't poach them. I can't steal them. So and because I'm trying to grow and be this, this full-time, you know, be a team that runs a full season, the, what you have to then do is build the talent. And so I'm, I'm grabbing, I'm hiring women who are, um, rookies or maybe early career. And so the way that I'm going to then make that happen is I've got to have them paired up with seasoned veterans. And so those seasoned veterans are guys. So my team is co-ed very much on purpose, but I also like what that says, because that's the only way that, I mean, we're basically like a metaphor for society in a lot of ways, like the, we're better together and we have to work together. Um, the coolest thing about racing is you can't fake it. You know, you're there. I always say like, you know, we're all training and they're all working hard, but on, on race day, if you saw like the women that were on our team last year at the, in the 2021 Indy 500, um, everyone that was there on race day earned their spot you know, number one is safety. Number two is competition. And number three is ego. You know, if we make that, that race day decision that you're going to be quote unquote on the bench, um, cause you have to be at hundred percent to put it in perspective at Indianapolis motor speedway, our driver, Simona Di Silvestro is hitting speeds of 230 miles an hour. Everything has to be perfect on the car. It, you know, we can't second guess if the wheel nut is tight. You know, if she, if we release her back into traffic, and a wheel pops off. Now, respectfully, can other teams make that mistake? Yeah, totally. And they did. And, and in fact, that happened this past year and it, and it can happen. It does happen. Um, but if it happened with us, you know that there's going to be a little bit like, well, of course, the lady team didn't mm -hmm. do it right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, we were aware of that pressure mm -hmm. because we had a little bit of extra, you know, we had people watching us and, and extra attention and either people were expecting a lot or expecting nothing. And so when you look at how hard these women worked last year, so we, yeah, we, we figured, okay, how do we get this group of people? We talked to a gentleman who actually had coordinated a lot of that NASCAR training school and knew these women that had gone through it and then kind of never, never were able to go any further because they just weren't getting hired and it wasn't for a lack of their effort or talent. And so he called one or two of them and then they kind of, you know, then, then they called two people and they called two people. And we actually started with nine last year, kind of almost like a combine. And after two weeks, whittled it down to six. Um, and then those six, we, we, and we, we started this February 1st to make the race May 30th. So it's a very short timeline, like no jokes. That's a short timeline. And these women, what was amazing. So we, we, I hired all six of them. And they went and trained. Um, so they lived in uh, the Charlotte, North Carolina area. And my, my partner team, Team Penske, 
all teams kind of have a, a workout area in the shop and they have a, you know, a, basically a mock-up of the pit area, right? So that they have the walls so that they can mm-hmm. like learn how to, what it's like to jump over the wall mm-hmm. and, and then have the, the equipment and the wheel gun. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they, they first practice on a, a static car and then they have a car that rolls in. It's like an electric car that rolls in because it's indoors. Mm-hmm. And then, and they do it over and over and over again. And we videotape the pit stop and then they watch it back. I mean, this mm-hmm. is, this is almost like, I mean, it's like a ballet you know, yeah. because it's all about the um, doing it quickly, doing it efficiently, doing it consistently. And to put it in perspective, um, an IndyCar pit stop is about it's got to be uh, less than 6.2 seconds. So that's how long it takes to fuel God. the car. Oh my God. How do we even use pit stop metaphorically for what my kids do on road trips? That is amazing. It's 6.2 right. oh, seconds. Oh yeah, no, no. They can't do anything in 6.2 seconds. No, oh, no, no, no. Oh my goodness. You're, you're doing an engine change when you pull my over. Goodness. You're doing a gearbox change or an engine change if we want to keep the metaphor running. Yeah. So here's the crazy thing. So the reason it's 6.2 seconds or why that's like the benchmark is that's how long it takes to fuel the car. So when the car comes in, that's like the constraint. Yeah. So why that number matters is if we, if my team practices and they can do a pit stop in 5.5 seconds, and then the Andretti team next to us can do it 5.2 and the Ganassi people can do it in 5.8. It doesn't matter. We're kind of, we're kind of even Steven. So that's the number that you want to hit. So we hire these women and remember these women have all like gone on with their, and some of them were also brand new rookies that hadn't gone through that school. So one of them was a college, uh, recent college graduate. So she had played lacrosse. So it's like, okay, we know she has a certain amount of physicality and dexterity. Let's see if she'd be up for it. And it was, she was like a friend of a friend of one of the ladies and, and, and like, Hey, would you want to try out to be on an Indy car pit crew? She's like, sure. They determine among the six of them that the best time for them that they had in common was 5 a.m., it was before their work day. A couple of them are moms. So they would go in at 4.30 and they would do the pit stop practice. And then they would also have like 45 minutes in the gym there with the trainer working on the specific strength that they need to do. They worked four days a week for three and a half months. To put it in perspective, their first pit stop, they did in 18 seconds, which honestly, I think is still fast to me. That still sounds fast to me, right? Four tires, fueling, uh, windshield tear off. They did it in 18 seconds. So that, that was their starting point. And they, they just did it over and over and over again, and then introduced another variable, another variable. So as we're leading up to race day, everybody was asking like, how many women are you going to have over the wall? Cause there's those, it's seven positions. And I knew no matter what, a couple of those positions have to be some of those veterans because yeah. like, like the car chief, respectfully, you don't even get to get to be a car chief until you've been doing this for several years. Like you climb up into that. So that's, that's the most seasoned of the guys. Nobody would have a rookie. Yeah. No, no rookies ever that role. So people kept asking like, how many women are going to be over the wall? Now, historically there'd been one on this team or one on that team. There'd never been even two on one team. So my goal was four, but I wouldn't tell anybody that. Uh, meaning the media, because I kept getting asked, yeah. you're going to have women over the wall. It's crazy. They're going to, you know, what do you say? You're going to have ladies go over the, you know, and uh, <laughs> I can do voices, right? Well, there, there, there is a universal patriarchy voice. Right. There is like a, you know, right. which is both like uninformed and quizzical. And it sounds like a guy from the, it sounds like the monopoly guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I get, people were asking and I wouldn't give the answer. And the reason, and I mean, obviously I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it like I was being um, like cagey. I just would deflect the question. And the reason for that was very specific uh, and deliberate. It was because I wanted to protect the plan 
because if for some reason on race day, so I should say that these ladies had never worked in IndyCar. They had never been to an IndyCar race. They've never been at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So we had these practice days in April, getting ready for where all the teams are there for two days in April. And then we come back the last two weeks of May. And when we turned up in April, I knew that they hadn't been IMS, but there was that moment of watching them because they all came in together uh, from the airport and watching just the look on their face because Indianapolis Motor Speedway is enormous. It's bigger than it looks on television. There's 350,000 people there on a normal race day. Like oh it's the still to this day, the largest single day sporting event in the world. Wow. So this day in April, it's empty. The stands are empty, but it's such this, you know, massive place that when you're walking in, it still has this energy empty. And I'm watching these women walking in for the first time. And you could just see their, them looking around in awe as anyone would be the first time. And, and if you're lucky to be there when it's empty, right? So we get there through the couple of days in April, and then we come back in May. And now those days, those two weeks in May, those are open to the public. And as is typical, every day that you're getting closer to the race, the crowds get bigger and bigger. And so I'm keeping an eye on these ladies. Like, how are they handling it? How are they handling the scrutiny and the attention? Because usually when you're a mechanic or an engineer, you're kind of hoping that people don't even notice that you're a woman. You're just like, I'm just doing my job. But because we were so forward and obvious with it, we were a curiosity. And even when I hired all the women, I, I reminded them, like, we're going to get a lot of attention and you need to be up for that. So, like, consider that as I'm hiring you, if you want to accept this job or not. Um, one thing that I did to re- say to reassure them is that we're, you know, we're doing this together. So you're not going to be alone. If at any time you feel uncomfortable, come to me. Even putting people forward and making sure that we had people of color who were already working on the team, making sure they were visible. Because respectfully, like, like our team photographer Uh, is a black woman and she's been a motorsport photographer for 25 years. We all know her. Everyone in racing knows her. She's normally behind the camera. And I was making sure that like, okay, when we did the team photo, like I want her in the photo because she was there the whole time, but let's make sure that you see it because those little things I think have value and those things matter for somebody watching from home. So the verdict is on race day, race day morning, I made the the call that we're, we're going to have four go over the wall. And so that day when the press asked me before the race, I said, four, we're going to go over the wall and we named them and they did. And so what was the most amazing thing is the first pit stop happened like 30 laps in Simona comes into the, the pits, the pit stall. And, uh, I've got my, you know, I'm standing there on the timing stand and we always, you know, we were wearing the radios. And so with the radios, I'm hearing her, I'm hearing the engineers. We have a spotter that's up up above the stands that kind of helps to talk to the drivers so that, the, you know, to, to let them know what's, you know, what's ahead or behind them. There's a lot going on. So she pulls into the pit, pit box, pit stop happens. She tears out of the pit box, run, you know, zooms down pit lane. And I could hear this noise. And I was like, what is that? And I lift my radio off my ears and I could hear the crowd just completely cheering. And I was like, what is that? Um, our pit stop was on the jumbotron. So all of Indianapolis motor speedway saw it. And so as she pulled in, it was our first pit stop. Everyone was on the edge of their seats. And I think it was that moment of like, here it is, it's going to make a break. And, uh, all we wanted to do was look like any other pit stop. And so it was this moment of, is, are we going to succeed or is it going to be this abject failure? And we, our pit stop was less than five seconds. Right. It was in that moment, I think it was like the first time I actually exhaled and you only have to do it once because it proves that you can do it. And 
the coolest thing, like I say, is you can't fake it. These women learned and they learned from scratch. And what a cool thing that is too, to just show that like with the right, if you have people that are interested and have, you know, the interest and the aptitude, um, if you, if you give them the, the, the training and, and the support and the tools, you know, you can, you can kind of create some magic. It's amazing when you don't just like tug on them to keep them behind. <laughs> right, right. Please stay behind this fence, this like, chain link fence. You can look through, you please. know, for your safety. It's for your safety, ma'am. Just wear these, you know, lightweights on your back for a while. <laughs> yeah, Carry exactly. this luggage. Um, exactly. Right. You know, that is, that's an amazing story and it must have been an amazing feeling. You um have said that you hope to, you know, show young girls or, um, you know, and people of color that the sport is open to them. What do you love about it? You know, I hate driving. Right. I, I hate driving. It's hard. I like schlep my kids around. Sure. It's terrifying. I respect them and in awe of it, but what do you like love about it? You know, I think if I really like peel back the layers, I started watching racing on TV as a kid like as a five-year-old. And um, my my childhood household was a bit chaotic. I had a brother who had, was um, suffering from cancer. And uh, so, you know, it was like, a, it was a, a heavy household at times, um, a, a very loving household, but that's just like that circumstance that that kind of life throws you a curveball. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, as a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, um, if I was flipping through the, the channels, if it landed on racing, I would leave it. And I think, especially as a young kid, cause you're not, I don't come from a racing family. I don't, you know, it's not, I'm not from Indianapolis or Charlotte or any of the obvious places where it's kind of like the, you know, like the, the cottage industry. Mm-hmm. But I think when I would see it on TV, I found it soothing which I know sounds really crazy. Cause yes, if you think about it, like the noise and the smell and this, but on TV, it presents differently. There's like this smoothness and this cadence and the colors. And so when you're that young too, you're seeing like the colors and the numbers and the, this, and, and I think it's something also you can start to even connect as a young person of that you're following a certain car. And then you, you feel almost like it might've been one of the earliest things where I was like an engaged viewer, right. In, in the most basic primal sense and it clicked for me in that way. And to this day, um, at its most chaotic, and I mean, I've been, I've had teams that are in the 24 hours of Le Mans and, and 24 hours of Daytona and I mean, NASCAR championships and whatever, and it's noisy and it smells of, you know, rubber and, and gas and oil, but no matter what, I think it just still, it's like my happy place. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's going to, you know, strike a chord for a lot of our listeners who find solace and energy in sport, um, no matter what it is. Um, As I read, Red Racing is not doing the Indy 500 this year. Can you tell our listeners where they're going to find you all uh, this summer? So what's unique about the Indy 500 is you can actually do it as a one-off race. You don't have to necessarily be in the whole season. So way long story short, I made the decision a couple months ago not to do the Indy 500 again as a one-off. And I had, you know, I had the option to do that again um, and I'd maybe do one other race. And it didn't, there, uh, we're having, like everywhere else, we're having some challenges with getting uh, good talent that, that and who's available, like on the engineering and mechanics side. And I said, you know what? I don't want to do anything by halves. 
um, because I'm, I'm very protective of our program and I want us to grow and I want us to gain more experience. So we're going to do, I announced three races. We might do more as our schedules allow, but our first race is June 12th at Road America, which is in Wisconsin, a gorgeous track, uh, about an hour north of Milwaukee. Our second race is 4th of July weekend. It's actually the third, the Sunday, the third at Mid-Ohio. Uh, and then I, August 7th on the streets of Nashville, mm-hmm. which is last year was the first year we had that race. And I think there were over a million people there over the course oh, of the wow. weekend. It was just insane and fantastic because like, what a city to put on a, an event. It like, so it's, and it's on the streets. So when, when we have a, a, a track like that, we have that, we do that in Long Beach, we do it in St. Pete, Florida, we have Detroit and, and now Nashville. Those are the four ones that are on the streets where they're like downtown in a city, Totally different vibe, totally different fan base. You kind of get the casual fan that's like, something's going on in town. We'll check it out, which is great because that's kind of how you maybe introduce new people to the sport in general. Um, but Nashville is such a hospitality driven place that it was like, it's, it was like, we'd been there for 10 years when even in year one, because you didn't have the hotels saying like, okay, who are you guys? And why are you here? They were more like welcome. And and like, even the first, you know, the, the welcome race fans and all the checkered flag, you know, outside the hotels, which make you feel like, okay, that's cute. And and listen, because it's also the bachelorette, uh, apparently, uh, headquarters of the world now, which, yeah. Oh my God. With the party buses. Yeah. Oh yeah. The pedaling. If you haven't been to Nashville in a while, holy cow. It's shocking how much it's just like ladies walking around with sashes that say <laughs> ride. <laughs> well, I hope they take some time out and check you all out. August 7th. Right. We could have all the bridal parties. Like we can probably just have like one grandstand filled with like bridal parties. I think that would be like the funnest bachelorette party ever. Right. I mean, how early can you really just start partying? You know what I mean? Like, thank you. You need to pay. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. That's right. So what's one thing that is cool this year, which has been missing for the past several years. So one, like I say, what's cool about racing and why I would encourage anyone to just check it out is it, it, it's co-ed right now. Like, so we have women on the grid this year for IndyCar. We actually, it'll be the first time in almost 10 years or more than 10 years. We're at road America. There's, there's another woman in the series called Tatiana Calderon, uh, who drives for AJ Foyt racing. And when we're at road America and mid Ohio and Nashville, there's going to be two women on the grid and as drivers. And that is cool. really good. And, and we should see more of that. And there are other teams who have women on, you know, as engineers and mechanics. So look closely and you'll see them. And, um, and hopefully it's just opening the door a little bit and maybe in 50 years from now, we'll have more. Well, and it's, it's, it's amazingly international, right? You've got Simona. Oh, yeah. She's Swiss. Tatiana is from Colombia. Yep. We have Brazilian drivers. I mean, that's one thing. IndyCar from the beginning of time has always, from the beginning of IndyCar has always had international drivers for sure. In fact, we used to, the IndyCar series used to have some international races. We would go race in Brazil. We'd race in Japan. We'd race in Europe. We may do more of that in the coming years. Um, They've talked about maybe adding Mexico city. Uh, We do go to Toronto, which is international, um, but for, for the U S but what's great though, is uh, even when, you know, I've, friends in, in the UK and Europe, and they absolutely follow IndyCar. So in fact, this week, this past weekend, I was in London and I was watching qualifying in my hotel in London. And it was, it was kind of cool that it, it wasn't hard to find it. That's awesome. Well, I burn it all down. Um, we wish you the best of luck and we're excited to see what happens this summer. Everybody go and follow Pareta Autosport. Best of luck to you June 12th. Check out their website for their schedule, parettaautosport.com. We wish you the best of luck and we're so excited to see what happens.
Thanks so much. Hope to see you guys at the track. So that's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Verstig. Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. You can follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and read the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find links to our merch at our bonfire store. And thank you to our patrons. Your support means the world. If you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burnitalldown. I'm Brenda Elsie, and on behalf of all of my wonderful co-hosts, burn on and not out.